Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary. Thank you very much. Firstly, apologies for not being here. As we said, we would be on Monday. An interview fell through at the last minute, and there was a sort of desperate scramble to try and find news. And we've had shows where we have scraped, you know, the bottom of the barrel. But this would have literally been, like, taking the actual splinters out and trying to feed them to you. The number one story in the examiner was about a bridge in Portugal, and it wasn't even a particularly nice bridge. It was a long bridge. So we eventually found that there was simply no news. I did try and find a recording of that famous day when the BBC came out and said today there was no news but we couldn't do that so we thought we'll just give them nothing also there was a discussion about whether or not having you download something that was 10 seconds long would go down well or not (laughs) the consensus was no as we were recording this the results are just starting to come in for the british elections that are being going on obviously we're not going to know the results as we're recording this but what we've seen so far is in about Two-thirds of the locations that have come back, the Conservatives have been up over 20 points. Now, to give you an idea of how blue some of these areas are, there have been areas where they've been up 20 points, and Labour has been down 5 to 10 points, and the Conservatives still haven't won. So this is deep, deep blue, or deep red territory. This is Labour heartland. And if the Conservatives are up 20 points there, God knows what the rest of the country looks like. Yes, it's... (laughs) They've been spending the day, well, the last couple of days, desperately trying to downplay everything, saying, well, you know, it's going to be a mixed bag. Some places we we may do well, other places it's going to be hard to know. Labour have really been investing Hartlepool, a lot of flooding it with uh, activists really getting the vote out. So, And Labour doing exactly the same thing, well, you know, we don't expect it to do well. I, well, they're managing bad news rather than managing good news. Nobody wants to sort of get caught out. You know, well, it's a bit of a disaster for you. You only won X number of seats and your vote only went up by 17%. Because you thought it would be 19, didn't you? But it, it'll be interesting to see tomorrow when it's all it's all shaken. The Scottish results will be interesting too. There will be, because there's a lot in play there as well at the minute. But as I said, those results are just coming in uh, as we're talking. There's uh, not a lot to go on, as it were. So we'll just get right into it with the Irish news. Michael! Finna Fáil has some thoughts on housing. <laughs> well, thoughts. That's generous, Gary. Uh, Fianna Fáil seems to be having, well, understandably perhaps, a little bit of a, a nervous breakdown uh, on the issue of the housing crisis. I'm amazed it took until now. I would have thought the panic about performance would have set in ages ago. But instead, there just seems to, for no reason, have been this moment of, you know, this is actually going really badly, isn't it? Oh, God. <laughs> Well, it's it's funny you should say that. I, um, one of the big things that's getting people very, very exercised at the moment, as you know, Gary, is the fact that uh, the purchase, quoting here from the Irish Times, the of large swathes of housing schemes by investment funds is, quote, unacceptable. And people are getting very annoyed about this. I, I, some of these uh, are being done by, at, a part, at least in part, by Irish investment groups, apparently some even with some government funding. I think we've heard a lot of vulture funds being involved. Now, vulture funds may be involved. Uh, I, I don't know. The thing about this is, maybe there is a reason to be really exercised about it, but all across continental Europe, it's an absolutely standard thing for blocks of apartments to be owned by, say, pension funds or insurance companies as part of their portfolio, because it's kind of, it's it's an income. It's stable. It's uh, they tend to, you know, obviously property goes up and down, but long term, uh, city properties in the right areas tend to be you know, reasonable investments. So it's not it's not it's not a weird thing, Gary, internationally for large investment companies, pension funds or whatever, to to get into the business of buying lots of houses. The, the difference is here, we don't build apartment blocks we built housing estates so rather than having them on top of each other they're spread out so they come and they buy those um i think it's maybe is it the the foreign element is it the sense that these large multinationals are competing with the poor people to buy houses i don't know the suggestion the suggestion that left-wing parties could put forward something that is in any way xenophobic or you know would play to those sort of impulses is, is ridiculous those are things that only the far right does 
when the left-wing parties <laughs> do it, it's not those things. I mean, it might seem on the face of it like the foreign part is a big part of it. I stand corrected and chastened. The thing about it is, my my understanding was for an awful lot of the first time buyers here, Gary, is the problem is that they can't afford to buy the houses anyway. They can't get the, they can't afford to get the deposit required, and even if they could, the mortgage rules with 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 their combined incomes mean they wouldn't qualify for the mortgage for the houses at the prices they're being sold at anyway. So precisely how many people are being pressed out of the market by this, I'm not sure. The houses are going to be rented anyway, and we do know that there is a crisis with rented accommodation in the country. It sh- really it isn't the question of why we're not building more houses. I mean, I think that that's the interesting thing here, Michael, because if you take all of the complaints about this from the left, from the right, from the centre, everyone's complaints, and they've put in place these incredibly complicated schemes and they're talking about the need to do very particular things... And then you sort of go, well, wouldn't every one of these issues that you've said be solved by just building more houses? Yes, it would. But yes, it wouldn't as well. Actually, I think, Gary, if we're going to be as honest as we can be. We've been talking about this for that since we started. This was, I started talking about, even to the point of writing about this, when I used to do that kind of thing. Oh God, it's at least five years ago now when I, I started talking about the housing crisis in Ireland because it was as obvious as the plane in your, as, as, is, as the, the nose in your face that we had a serious problem. When you looked at the numbers, it was not complicated. We weren't, we stopped building houses, right? Okay, number one, we stopped building houses. Number two, the population kept going up. Number three, because of the collapse in the housing market and the collapse in the economy and the high levels of unemployment, there was a period of time where you had people who weren't looking to go into the housing market. But once the economy recovered and people were back in employment, full employment returns, and people are now looking for now looking to get, move out of their parents' basements and back out into the housing market, the fact that no houses are being built, that was going to be a problem. But, and this is why I say build, a, is it, maybe it's not just enough just to build the houses. Something happened in between the, the 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 last economic crisis and the return to fund employment, which was the government, uh, local and national, got into the business of regulating new built housing and substantially, very substantially, increased the cost of building a new house. Now we've quoted him here, and anybody who wants to go, Ronan Lyons has done all the numbers on this. He's published several papers on it. They're very interesting. They're very clear. Anybody who wants to go to have a have a look at them, but problem was that until not that long ago gary i mean we were well into people taking the idea that we actually had a housing crisis very seriously well into that we're talking maybe a couple of two and a half years or three years maybe two and a half years ago no we're, we're talking here principally about dublin and, and the areas near dublin housing crisis is not quite the same in leitrim as it is in these in uh in leinster and dublin where the cost of building a new house was greater than the retail price of a second-hand house. Now, if building something is going to cost you more than what you're going to be able to charge on the market, then Gary, that is likely to discourage people from getting into the business of building houses. Outside of three or four uh, postal districts in Dublin, that was the case. Again, until around three years ago, if you're looking at the cost of building, there were only, I think, D4 and D6 were the only postal districts that were returning rental incomes that would have justified the cost of building those houses to rent. So we had a, there was a massive depressing effect on the building industry. And there are other problems. That we have also got other problems with the building industry. Capacity. The fact that we don't have developers that are really in a position to go into the, the kinds of the size of the developments that we would like them to do. Then there were, well, we, we don't want to go into the whole problems with NAMA and the way they, they sold the blocks of land out afterwards and the, how that stopped smaller developers getting involved. But anyway, to synthesize, because of the increase, the in, substantial increases in the cost of house building, it may be, Gary, that simply building enough houses isn't, is obviously going to be a big help, but it's not going to be in it of itself a complete solution. It may be that we also are going to have to unpick some of the regulations and look at the, at no have maybe I've missed it, Gary, but have you ever in the last two years seen anybody in government or even outside of a talk 
about the the problem of the cost of building and addressing that and right and not just not simply the pro the cost of 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 land which people have become obsessed with because of the last experience they're fighting the last war where they're they're obsessed with the increases in the prop the price of development land but the actual cost of building the house itself. I don't see anybody's looked at that and see if there's anything the government can do effectively to reduce the cost of building. No, the last thing, the government has not only not talked about this side of things, the government has focused entirely on one particular side of this equation, on, on consumer side of things. Do you remember in 2019, in late 2019, they announced that they were going to have stringent new building regulations and that it was going to the buildings that were going to be built everything would have to have an a2 energy rating yeah and any any existing build if you were doing a a major renovation you'd have to bring it up to a b2 energy rating as part of that now that could cost you god no like a substantial amount of money i, I had the figures then but it was tens of thousands to yeah at the time they were congratulating themselves on how they had done this and I remember the EBI came out and we had talked to a couple of people. I know it was published in Gripped. I think Tim Jackson wrote it. And we were making the point that if the way the system is set up, banks are limited in what they can lend you yes. based on your income. So there is an absolute ceiling of what people can get. Every time you push up the build price of a house, you push more and more people out of that, uh, out of being able to afford housing due purely to regulation. And we made the point that that's what the government is doing here. They, they have increased costs through regulation after regulation after regulation. And then they're congratulating themselves on how great the standards are for the houses that you can now no longer afford to buy or build. Nowhere did that seem to ever click with anyone. And you saw government ministers talking about how great this was and wasn't this fantastic. You should go, no, no, this is insane. We have a massing housing crisis and you're making it worse. One of the a point that you were making, I remember at the time, Gary, and I think it's an important one because very often politicians and well-meaning people say, ah, yeah, obviously these kinds of things are going to be costly at the beginning. But when you look at your energy savings over, stretched out over the, your, over the next 40 years, these houses are so energy efficient that you're going to, you you only have to live in the house for 40 years and you'll actually make the money back. You will save money on electricity, you'll save money on gas, you'll save money on heating. It'll be great. But as you pointed out, the problem is, if you're a first-time buyer, all of the cost is front-loaded. It's not that you get to spread out the cost along the 40 years where you're saving the money at the same time. You have to pay all that cost up front. And at a time where the de deposit requirements have become more stringent and the mortgage uh, regulations are more stringent, and we're not getting to the rightness or wrongness of that, we, we know why that was done. The effective, the effective result was just to simply make these houses completely unaffordable for the kind, for first time buyers. Well, the vast majority of first time buyers. It's no good saying, oh, well, you're in the long term. Yeah, as Keen said famously, in the long term, we're all dead. The problem with here, you've front-loaded all these costs. And you, all, it's no use saying to me, in 40 years' time, I'll have made this money back on a house I don't own, nor can I own. Yeah, I think the, the thing we tend to forget in Ireland and in most developed nations is that if you, when you look at nations that have really weak legal protections third world countries places where the government doesn't have a lot of control there aren't terribly centralized bureaucracies people have homes pretty much anyone who wants a home has a home because you'll just build something and it might be terrible it may be a debt trap but you have a home and you can obviously move up from that a lot of what we're seeing with people forced out of homes and and things of like that are diseases of bureaucracy now you, people will say there should be a minimum level but you have to understand that every time that level goes up, you push more and more people out of it. Like bedsits were a great example. We banned bedsits because we said, well, a family shouldn't have to live in a bedsit. To which the answer would be, well, what if the only place a family could afford to stay is a bedsit? And what about all those people who aren't in families and want to stay in bedsits? What proportion of families were living in bedsits? I was never asked. You know, the, the, the vast, everybody knew the who lived in, the vast majority of people who lived in bedsits were students or people who, who, who are working in Dublin who, say, come into the civil service or guards, nurses, whatever, first years, low incomes, and needed somewhere to, 
to stay. They were never going to stay there very long. And people say, oh, these, the conditions in some of these places were squalid. Yes, they were. I remember Dawson Down and friends, bedsits and uh, student digs at times in the long, long ago. And some of them were pretty horrendous. But this was never... This was never planned to be where they were going to be in 20 years' time. In fact, it was never going to be there where they were going to be in three years' time. Even on the on the standards and low standards, that was, again, partially a result of supply. Because even then, supply was quite constrained. And if there's a broad supply of things at various price points, it's a lot easier to find somewhere where the standards are good. Where, you know, when supply is constrained you're not more likely to just take anything. Oh, absolutely. You could have. There was also an issue. That one of the issues was about space. I mean, they came along at the same time as this. They, the new builds, new apartment builds, they came along with minimum sizes. I think, was it literally 65 and then reduced to 45 square metres was the, the smallest you could build. But I've, 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 I've opined here before, if you go to continental Europe, certainly in Italy, I mean, 25, 30 square metres in what they call a... a, a what they would call a monolocale, a single, a single room space, basically, is perfectly normal. And people accept that you pay for space. And as you get more money, then you buy more space. But that will, that's what that money gets you. Now, as a consequence of this is a normal thing, because it's in Italy or France or Germany or Denmark, where people, you know, value design, you can get some beautifully designed, very comfortable, very nice spaces to live, 25 and 30 square metres. No, they're not massive. You're not going to have a big party in them, Gary. But you will have a perfectly functional, comfortable place to live within your price range. You will have somewhere you can go. Actually, interestingly enough, I was looking a while ago at different rental properties. And at the price point I was looking at, the nicest place going, by far, were co-living spaces. Remember those horrible things, Michael, that we should never allow anymore? They were, compared to other things at the price point, fabulous in relation to the amenities that were there and in relation to the quality of the furnishings, the rooms, just the general locations. And yeah, obviously there is a trade-off there. But still, even still looking at it, you're sort of going, well, actually, the overall package there is very, very, um, you know, it's, it's worthwhile. The weird thing, just when we're talking about there about cost, Michael, everything the Fianna Fáil does on this and everything successive governments have done on this, they, they focus on this, they focus on trying to get more people into a position where they can buy homes by just pushing grants and money into that area, into an area which is already massively overheating, instead of actually trying to loosen supply and see if the, we can actually build something. I mean, change, there's, there's stuff there that'd be very difficult to do. But the planning system, a review of the planning system, and, you know, defunding on Tasca and removing all of its statutory powers, Yeah, that in its own would only improve the country. And I would say substantially and quite quickly. Uh, also, just the right thing to do in and of itself, the idea that a, pri a, a private organisation that you pay a membership to should have statutory powers and all, and all, all of the, the weird obfuscation that goes along with the role in planning anyway, and the secrecy and the lack of transparency there is just wrong in the Republic. just shouldn't happen. But yes, the predictability and the transparency of, of the planning system is also reflects in the cost. Because when you're a builder and you're looking into developments, you're going you're, you're to cost that in, because you're taking a risk. I mean, I've been looking at the new Finnafal housing bill. I have yet to see meet anyone who talked positively about it. Anyone on in Feeder Fall, in Finnegale, in any party. I don't get this focus on the demand side of things. The demand is clearly there. We're hearing now talk of tax incentives. We need to look at tax incentives. Well, actually, just, just for the listener, just because we're talking about demand and supply, I just to, to actually explain that in case you're not familiar with it. When you look at these things, generally there's two ways you can you can interfere with these things. You can look at affecting demand which is the amount of people who want to buy something, have the capability to buy something, or supply, which is the amount of that uh, item that is available to the market. We basically have an issue where supply is heavily constrained, we don't build a lot, and so prices are quite high. On the demand side, you have the issue of the central bank limiting how much money you can actually take for a mortgage. But that was done in order to avoid what happened in the Celtic Tiger with property prices from happening. And the problem here is that if they were to remove those restrictions without fixing the supply issues, house prices would go 
catastrophic. It would be incredible. And it would happen pretty much immediately. And that's the risk with all of the things that we've seen, like the first-time buyer's grants, all of those things. They can just drive up the actual price. That's all they can do. If you have a market where the problem is a constraint in the supply, and all you do is is feed in, feed in the demand and you increase the liquidity in demand. You give them more money, but you leave the supply as as it is. You leave the status quo in the supply. All you're going to do is inc- is that money will just directly the competition for the for for the for the good is going to be the same. So people will have more money to bid, so they'll just bid up the price. I, I, it's a slightly different thing, but back in one of the one of the many factors that went into the in the great boom boom time was was you had a lot of uh, there were certain parts of the countries where parts of the country where you could were under a, I want to say section 28 but that sounds wrong anyway there was a particular tax incentive that if you built in these areas then you could get you could there were tax advantages for rental properties in other places anyway but and what it did was at a time when the building industry was already working pretty well at capacity and there was massive inflation, wage inflation, and there was significant inflation in in supplies as well. But particularly, ways they they diverted resources away from places where people actually wanted to live and sent them into places around the country, but for seaside resorts and places like that, where there wasn't any particularly strong demand. But you created an artificial demand by creating these tax incentives. My point is that when you start fiddling around with things like tax incentives and extra money, extra grants for this and extra, all you do at the end of the day, it, the market is a bit. I always think of it as it's a bit like if you get one a long balloon and fill it with water. You can squeeze it here and you can squeeze it there, but ultimately, all you're doing is creating a bulge somewhere else. <laughs> you either have to get less water or a bigger balloon, and. If you're going to increase the amount of money available to people on the demand side and you leave the supply side alone, then the prices will just go up. You have to address the supply side as well. Now, I imagine they will say that they are doing that. They're not, though. I mean, they're doing it in, like, they're tinkering with things. And yes, they put in certain things which are allowing certain large-scale developments to go through more easily. But it's, it is mostly just a tinkering. The entire thing should just be root and branch torn out and rebuilt. And there's there's tons of stuff with the Irish housing market that could be done quite easily. Now, there is a great deal of political reticence to do it, and local communities are generally a large reason for that. People don't like housing near them. They don't like anything of the sort. You know Fianna Fáil better than I do, Michael. Why is it that... Uh, why, do they, why do they think it's a problem now? I don't think they think it's a problem now. I think they've... T- they have thought it's a problem for a long time. I think they're they feel like they're they're in government with Finnegal and they feel like they're being lumped together with Finnegal regarding housing, and that there's a perception that Finnegal isn't doing enough, that Finnegal is a bit too middle class on this, and that they're not speaking to that kind that that working class base, the lower income base that Fianna Fáil should be speaking to on this but i think underneath it all actually really the reason they're coming to it shall we say a bit late and they're all a bit confused by it is there's still there's a scar there's a psychological scar Fianna Fáil, there is some are terrified of supporting developers of supporting building because they're the party of developers they're the party of building they're the party of the great crash one of the things i, I would actually really like and now that he's left politics it might become possible at some point is Owen Murphy in his time as housing minister. Yes. I would say if Owen Murphy had heard what we were talking about in relation to the, the housing market, he would have absolutely known all that. I would suspect he would have agreed with a great deal of that. Maybe not all of it, but a great deal of it. Yeah, I think so. He made a lot of noises like that, yeah. But he never was able to get it implemented and to get any of these things done. And I'd be very curious why that was, because I suspect that is what he would have wanted to do. And the fact he he didn't do it would indicate either, well, maybe he got some very good advice and changed his mind when he got in there and we're wrong, or maybe there is a great deal of political pressure or there are blockages there of some type that make it difficult, if not impossible, to actually reform this area. I think there are I think there are lots of bits and pieces of things coming going on here politically. I think there has been a framing about the language about housing, which is moving housing always towards the idea that it, that housing is a right, that a house is a, is a human right rather than another capital good like a like a car or 
shares or whatever. And therefore, you treat it differently. And in a sense, we're more and more moving towards the idea where, therefore, if, it's, if it is a human right, that this is something that the state has to intervene to provide if, inverted commas, there is a market failure to supply it. Secondly, part of that was there, there was rhetoric, I mean, going back to the, to the boom times and then, but which has, I think, been amplified because of the crash and what happened there, that the idea of the developer the developer is the is the one of the bogeymen, along with bankers and politicians, of course. The developers are bogeymen. They're wicked exploiters of the people, screwing them out of money to get the maximum report. I remember prominent remember the Labour Party on a panel discussion show back in the day, viciously attacking someone, saying that they were ex that they were profiting, profiting from people's need to have a house and a roof over their head. And so implicit in that is the idea that there is something fundamentally unsavoury about the idea that you should take a profit out of providing for housing, that it is a, it's a social good and it should be provided as a social good. Now, attached to this at the same time, we, have, we are still married to this idea that everybody should own a house. There's a weird kind of contradiction at times when you listen to politicians talk. At one time, at some time, there, there's a, at one element, there's a talk, there's talk about the expansion of social housing and a great provision of local authority housing and uh, long-term rental. We should be following, say, some continental models where people will rent. And you know, for a long, long time, I mean, plenty of economists, and I'm not talking about people on the left, people all over the left to the right have, have observed that from the point of view simply of money in your pocket, that very often for people it actually made more sense to go in for long-term leasing on rents and take the money you saved from renting rather than paying a mortgage and to invest that and you'd actually end up with a better capital result at the end of your 40 or 50 years than you would have done if you'd bought a house. Now, of course, the problem is now it can be that your rent is actually higher than a mortgage. I mean, some parties talk a better game than others, but I've generally found that when you actually look into their members, both at TD level and a councillor level, you will see a clear pattern in their own areas of trying desperately to stop any development at all. And you find this, I mean, with some people who talk very, very good games on housing, Michael, some people who might oh, yeah. perhaps be spokespeople. <laughs> on the topic and then you know don't like things being built in their own area and generally actually what they will do here is in order to avoid the tds having to say it because then the you know someone might ask the td about it and it might be embarrassing tds will write notes of concern which aren't them saying it shouldn't happen they're just concerns and then the party's councillors will take that note of concern and they will try and stop it and of course with the backing of the TD. And they will dress it up nicely with all sorts of very good social community reasons why this type of development is completely unacceptable for this particular area. I mean, we're absolutely in favour of building and we think there should be more building and better building and lots of it. But this kind of development in this area at this time, well, no, I mean, that's just not suitable. No, I mean, the fronting wasn't even a solid marble it was, it was simply unacceptable it was it wasn't even real portland stone it was something they brought in from china and then the follow-on of but you know if we were if we give this land to the council we we could build you know the most beautiful hundred percent social housing fronted in marble building and then you know you go 10 years down the line and you sort of go did that ever happen it's like oh no <laughs> no we, we forgot about that whoops move on from the housing thing michael we've talked before about media funding in ireland and there was talk there about that um certain industries certain media industries in ireland are now effectively being propped up entirely by the state through the usage of advertisements now we have finally got some figures from that because of uh, a pq parliamentary question for those not in the know uh, that carol nolan sent in to the hse and that came back with some figures from the hse the long and short of it is, over the last year, the HSE has spent about £5.9 directly to radio, television and newspapers in the form of uh, advertisements about COVID-19. Some of it is about vaccinations, some of it is about general awareness. Now, £5.9 is a decent chunk, but I would suspect, Michael, I would suspect that there's also, I would say, substantial ad buys from the like of the Department of Health 
the Department of Foreign Affairs, the Department of Social Protection, maybe the Department of the Taoiseach? I suspect the Department of the Taoiseach, most definitely. And um, maybe a couple of others. And I would say, you know, I, I, you know, could be absolutely wrong on this, if we were to get all of those numbers together, we wouldn't be looking at 5.9 million. We'd probably be looking at, I would say, it, would, it wouldn't be out there, Michael, I would say, to, you know, tens of millions in advertisements to the Irish media. It's, I was having a conversation with a TD a little while ago, and I we were talking about it afterwards. I said, I couldn't understand I was a little bit confused. They said, "I could see, you know, the you know the the papers and RT are doing their thing, and they're being very supportive, and they're all singing from the same hymn sheet." But I said, "Local radio is it's very odd. Local radio is uh, usually there's there's a little bit of spark, or you get a bit of debate going, and there's some oddity, a bit of interest." She said, "Oh no no no." He said, "Might you have to remember their commercial base has collapsed it because I said." RT obviously is pure, is fun, publicly funded. Most of the papers, in fact, I think all the papers, are desperate for revenue because I mean, print media is in just is in shit. So, for them, the financial upside of this kind of is pretty obvious. But the, the, the local radio is doing well. He said, "Yeah, but remember, commercial their commercial advertising base has just just fallen through the floor." It the 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 government, both state and local government advertising, is happening. He said that's what's keeping them going, and I think when you look at it, that that it, you you start to see a a media landscape which is a little bit worrying. I haven't um, I haven't talked to anyone in the TV section on this, and print are always a bit weird to talk to. But I've heard from a couple of people involved in national radio stations that that is absolutely the case. That this is now an existential issue for these people. But what you what I think is interesting, Michael, is they've got the. So I have the figures in front of me that, that the HSE sent Carol Nolan, and they're broken down by month and purpose. Yeah. So you have the vaccine advertisements come online in, you know, kind of December forward. Kind of more coming in in January, but starting in December. Since January of this year, the HSE has paid nearly 1.2 million to TV radio stations. Nothing to print, weirdly enough. But to TV and radio stations, 1.2 million, nearly, for COVID awareness campaigns. Now, I would say, if you were going to make a payment that's effectively a subsidy to the media, but obviously can't say it's a subsidy, you'd find it there. Because what is the purpose of that campaign right now? And if you have the same thing from the Department of Health, Foreign Affairs, Shock, Social Protection, we'll see. We will see what the total figures are here. But we can now absolutely say... That yes, there is millions going into this area from the government. And I think it was obvious that that was the case. But uh, before Carol Nolan put in this question and got this response, it wasn't quantifiable. So it was very easy for people to just say, oh, no, it's it's probably some minor amount. Yeah. Whereas I would suspect it is a very substantial amount when all of these things are put together. Well, I think in the context of what's been going on, I mean, for their, all their other revenue streams, I think it's going to be very substantial indeed. I would suspect so. And I would suspect that we won't see things like that COVID awareness campaign stop. Because if people are correct, and this is effectively being used to keep these things afloat, those things can't stop. They need to keep going. And Yeah, under some kind of a guise. Yeah. So no one, I, I think, has asked about this. But then again, who would ask about this? If you're paying off all the media, yeah. if you're paying millions upon <laughs> millions and advertising for them, and they're the people who report these things, who's going to report it? Yeah, I can nearly imagine Gript receiving a, a letter from the HSE soon saying, so if we were to take advertisements with you, how much would it cost? <laughs> Our soul, that's all. Soul and a nice dinner. Yeah. But no, I just wanted to, to mention that uh, and put that out there. We will keep chasing this up. We will try and get the exact figures on it. Now, the HSE refused to give Carol Nolan the actual breakdown of who has received what money, as in what media outlets have received different amounts. They said that was commercially uh, sensitive information, and we'll see if we can push them on that, but I would suspect they are going to absolutely refuse to give out anything on that. But we now know. We now know that there's definitely millions uh, being spent on it, and roughly at least what the HSE is spending. They also spent like 417,000 on billboards. Billboards, really? But they've got um one of the they've one category of display ads, which is 303,158. And they've another category of OOH, which is a type of outdoor uh 
advertisements, which I think they would put billboards in. They may have put it in display. It's it's actually got that kind of annoying thing where they give you something and it's all laid out, but they don't tell you what's actually in each category and they don't explain their acronym. So like there's VOD, which is fine if you work in the air because you'll know that's video on demand. But I don't imagine that's something a TDE would know immediately. Yeah. But we will keep this up. We will, I'm sure, get some fun little things from that. Just a quick note on the um, vaccination target, by the way. We were meant to hit 860,000 in April. We missed that by about 160,000. The Irish Times says we got over 700,000. The figures I have say we got under 700,000. I think I'm right. I went back and I checked all of it because of that. But I, I might be wrong. There might be I might be off by a couple of thousand. But the government is definitely off by somewhere in the region of 150 to 160,000 vaccines. Uh, somebody was counting, I, I saw on Twitter, in the when the RTE news reports on the vaccine rollout, and in, in, I think in a fairly short space of time, rapidly, quickly, very quickly, and very quickly indeed were all used, I'm paraphrasing here, in the, in the report. The the story very definitely is, well, it may have been a little bit slow in the back, but God, we're really bursting it out now. Well, on a sense, we are. We, we The last week, really, the last two weeks, have seen quite substantial kind of growth. I mean, if you go back to the middle of April, we were doing, you know, 124,000, and we were stuck in that region. And then since then, we went, like, you know, 142, then about 185 then 200,000, and now we'll see what we do this week. It is, it, there was a period of stagnation, and now it is moving up. But that stagnation absolutely cost us uh, hitting that target. That is the second major target that the government has missed. I think those are the only two targets they've set that we've we've actually gone by so far. So by that calculation, we have missed every major vaccination target we've set. And by pretty substantial margins as well. It's 80%, isn't it, for June that every adult uh, will have been offered a, a vaccination, at least one. Even the government is saying that that won't happen. But there, one thing I did note about this, Michael, and I missed it at the time. The CEO of the HSE, Paul Reid, came out and he said that they had done somewhere in the region of 788,000. And you might think, Gregory, you said we only did, you know, about 700,000. Where did the rest of it go? Well, the Irish Times went and they looked into it. And weirdly enough, they didn't make this its own story. They just mentioned it in a throwaway fashion in the middle of another article. The HSE told them, HSE sources, unnamed HSE sources, because I would imagine no one was going on the record with this, told them that the figures that the CEO of the HSE gave them for vaccinations included days in May. Because, Michael, the HSE classes some of the... uh, some of May as April weeks. Now, I'd make the point there, Michael, not April week, April weeks. (laughs) So how many weeks of May are now in April, according to the HSE? It's all getting a bit complicated. There is that little bit of a, kind of sounds like you, uh, you either made a mistake and gave, gave the figure it was on the day you said it, or you acted to, shall we say, expand the number slightly because... You thought it looked better. No, I say it's just an accounting thing. That the way their accounts, they've always counted May as fundamentally just part of April, as a way of getting from April to June. Yeah, but I mean, Michael, the problem there is if you do that, the concept of months kind of break down totally, don't they? Well, like I mean, if if part of March is actually February, but then part of April is actually March. What's happening? You're starting to hurt my head now. Well, this is the HSE's calendar system, apparently. This would explain why um, all of those, you know, the, the problems people have with getting a, uh, appointments and things. Well, it's a very fluid understanding of time, I suppose. Yes, and I mean, then you had, you know, Stephen Donnelly coming out and saying that they would hit their targets by the 31st of June. Yeah, sorry, I just thinking 31st of June, yeah, that would be a good one. I just, I'm just imagining that the, you might say to them, um, a week in May, well, you're a week in May. And yes, I am a week in May, but I identify as a week in April. I mean, it's the HSE system. On the 31st of June, Stephen Donnelly did come out and I think repeatedly say that we would hit that target on the 31st of June. And no one that he was talking to told him that such a date does not exist. <laughs> I hope we miss the target. 
purely so he can say, well, technically I wasn't wrong, was I? No, you don't. We, You hope we hit the target and indeed surpass it. So you wanted to ha- have a quick mention, Michael, of uh, Mick Wallace. He, he was in China. He's talking about China. I don't know if you see the speech he gave. Oh, China is great. That's the, that's what I took from it. China is fantastic. My favourite one. My well, there were not there were lots of good there's lots and lots of good stuff in it, but my favourite one was that he described China as a global leader in climate mitigation. Now the first thing about that is I'm not exactly sure what climate mitigation is. It's mitigating the climate. I think I know what it means, but I don't know what it means. I, I think what he means obviously is a climate you know on, on the level of. In the in the global battle against climate change and the oncoming disaster, uh, China is in there doing its very very best to spit. <laughs> the only thing is, like, in reference to something we might be talk- we might mention, I don't know a bit later on if we get the chance if we have time. I think eighty percent of the world's solar panels are produced in China in factories, uh, which obviously require uh, power electricity, and. Gary, if I were to ask you, what powers the factories that are making the solar panels? What would you say? You see, I think that's cheating because I know it's China and therefore it's going to be coal. It's got to be coal. China, of course, is... Uh, I was going to say it's the Saudi Arabia of coal. I'm not sure it is. I think maybe the United States actually has larger coal reserves than China, but China has lots of coal. And it is right now in the process, I think, of building enough... Um, in the process of building or planning to build, it's building and planning to build enough coal-fired power plants to power all of Germany by itself. And Germany's quite a big country with lots of factories, lots of lots of energy use. That's coal. I mean, the Chinese contribution to carbon emissions, Gary, is absolutely fucking massive. I mean, its contribution to plastics and plastics uh, going into the sea and all that. They also, I mean, they obviously manufacture a lot of these things. But then when you actually look at the... Um at the actual resource extraction for these things as well. I mean, you ever want, the listener ever wants a, a horrible time? Go look into cobalt mining and exactly what goes into that. And if you ever want a, a really bad time, I'll just give you three phrases. Chinese-led mining consortium, cobalt mine, Democratic Republic of Congo. Congo, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're in for just a rollicking good time, which you will at no point be surprised by what's happening. The Chinese have been very, very busy all over the world. Formerly a lot in Australia, but Australia and China have had a bit of a falling out. But the Chinese are very concerned and have been very concerned for a long time about rare earth minerals. Is that the right title? Rare earth minerals? Um, they were probably a bit prescient on this. They got, they they seem to catch, catch on more quickly than the rest of the, 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 the industrial world that this was going to be a big thing. And they were... Australia has quite a, but Africa is 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 very rich, particularly Central Africa, places like um, Central African Republic. Uh, uh, of Congo is Congo again, isn't it? It's hard to tell what the Congo identifies as at any point. Congo used to be there was the Belgian Congo, which became the Congo, which became Zaire, and I think it's back to being the Republic of the Congo again. And then you have the Central African, then you have the Republic of the Congo, which is not. Congo, and then you have the Central, you have the Central African Republic, which was an empire briefly under Bokasso. Anyway, all that area, there's lots of this stuff going on. Anyway, Chinese have been in there, and they are have got the rights for a hell of a lot of this, the mining concessions there, and the conditions put it this way are not nice. They are not nice at all. Uh, if anybody's you know worried about you know those factories where little children make footballs, I think the ch- little kids making footballs are doing are doing a, a lot better. I mean, I, uh, on good news, I think it was a day or two ago they uh, imposed military rule in some of the regions. Not all of the regions, just some of the regions. They don't have state of emergency, by the way, Michael. Who who does the Congo? The Congo does not have state of emergency. The Congo has a state of siege. <laughs> Well, you know, I suppose, you know, if you're living, Jesus, we're laughing, but the experience of living in that particular part of the world for the last, God knows, I mean, it is an incredibly blessed place if you're talking about natural resources, gold, diamonds, um, cobalt, I mean, rare earth minerals, uh, I think silver probably over there, copper, rubber, I 
think there's oil in places around there. Is there oil? It's certainly oil in Angola. Is there anyway, it, lots of really good stuff there. But God, they've had a rotten time of it. I mean, exploited, horribly exploited by the Belgians who were talking about the Congo. Congo, was that here, Congo? All of that place. I mean, the, then the, 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 when they got independence, it did not get a whole lot better. I mean, the Central African Republic with Bukasa, that was just horrible stuff. Not a good place. Anyway, one of the figures I thought, well, you know, we don't know if he's wrong, Gary. We don't know if he is wrong. But he, he, he adverted to the very successful um, COVID uh, management that, uh, strategy that China had, uh, one of the best COVID mitigation strategies on earth. Uh, now, there are two things about that. Um, the Chinese officially have had 90,000 COVID cases and around 4,500, 4,600 deaths, I think, um, which is slightly less than the number of deaths we've had in Ireland. Now, Gary, you will be surprised to know that there is a substantial difference in population, the population of China being a touch under 1.4 billion and the population of Ireland being a touch under 5 million. So there are those who are sceptical, Gary, just a little bit sceptical about the idea that the Chinese had less than 5,000 deaths regarding on, on COVID. Now, on the other hand, you and I remember back in the day, the videos of people being welded into their apartments by the Chinese by the Chinese army. Yeah. Uh, Drones overhead, armed police on the streets, body bags, some... No clear question of exactly what was happening or what all those armed people were doing. But yeah, I could no, I can actually see China being able to secure a debt rate, uh, a debt toll that low. Because China are going to do things if they think there's an issue that no other country, at least no, no Western country would countenance. And most dictatorships wouldn't have the resources or capability to implement. So I, I'm just curious if, if, for example, as I say, the... the welding people into their house if that's the kind of thing that mick would have approved of in the in the irish response to the covid outbreak here is this one of the elements in the covid mitigation strategy that he is he admires so much that he thinks that we should be we should be looking at that kind of thing uh, i'm just curious because uh, you know he's a man who obviously he's man of strong opinions and He's a bit heterodox. Maybe Mick would be willing to say, no, no, I think, you know, in the context of things, that would be okay. So, um, now, unfortunately, I imagine because of time constraints, when it comes to speaking in the parliament, Mick didn't get around to talking about the genocide against the Uyghur Muslims. Not that I've heard. Uh, he'll probably talk about that the next time. And when he does that, we, we'll, we'll come back and report that. I mean, there were things that he mentioned that, to be fair to China, are absolutely true. Where they were talking about some of the poverty reductions that we've seen in China. Absolutely. Now, there is obviously a question there about the impact of the US on that. Is that something that you can actually give to the Chinese government? But I think you can give a, a substantial amount to it. My actually concern with it is the start of it, which just says China is a normal country. No, maybe. It's trying to become a normal country by which it's trying, I mean, it's trying to subvert existing international and cultural norms to support its way of doing things. I just don't think it should be. Also, I think it's worth pointing out that the, the massive uplift that occurred uh, from uh, of lifting people out of poverty it happened first of all if you want to be chronologically uh, this occurred after it had occurred in large parts of the rest of east asia with the tiger economies places like which had liberated liberalized their economies places like south korea and singapore malaysia and others but it was also after the fact that uh, uh, under it was deng really wasn't it, it was deng Xiaoping. Uh, really launched them on the uh, the road basically of a, a market economy now a market economy where the single largest owner in pretty well all of the not all of the business but a hell of a lot of the businesses is the is the chinese communist party but uh, shall we say mao's fairly intensive attempts to apply good old-fashioned socialism and Marxist principles to China hadn't really done a whole lot to raise the standards of living, shall we say? Well, I mean, it raised the standard of living for those who remained amongst the living. Well, certainly they were they were better off than a hell of a lot of other people. And you know what they say, Michael? The only true equality is in the grave. So you win either way. Did he kill all the sparrows? He did. He did kill all the sparrows, Michael. And then the plagues came. 
plagues of locusts. The locusts came, that's right. First they killed the sparrows, then all the locusts. You see, that example there, that is an example, that's a Burke, that is, that is a Burkean point, Gary. That is a very good Burkean point. It's also, it is actually a really good example of the kind of reasons what we are talking about before about the housing market. When you start fiddling around with things that just are, that are working perfectly well in their correct place in, in nature, and you decide you're going to go in there and you're going to have a, an intervention, the state is going to intervene and make things better, the chances are you're going to make things worse. Now, so, in Wendy's case, it was picked spectacularly worse it was also a very weird idea to get rid of all the sparrows anyway but there you go for the further listening this by the way is not a joke Mao had what was called the war on pests um it wasn't just sparrows it was a number of things i i actually can't remember i think rats were in there but not sure what else and basically it was it was it was this national hygiene campaign and sparrows uh, are destructive to certain types of crops so they decided that they, they classed birds as like an enemy of the people yeah, it was bizarre, and they um, they told the public to to kill them, and that they did. And I think the government was also involved in it. But what they didn't realize is that sparrows eat locusts, and when they killed all the locusts, or the the sparrows, nothing was left to eat the locusts, and this wave of locusts just swarmed China. Biblical event, pharaonic. Uh, the pharaonic figure of Mao was left facing in to his own little his own personal plague of locusts. Yeah, listen, uh, China is a fascinating place, and uh, I'm sure we will be back there soon to look at it again and see more interesting things to come back and tell us about. Didn't he also? Didn't he also tell farmers to set up like small blacksmithing stills on their land and to try and make things? And this was meant to up industrial production, and it just turned out the farmers are shit at blacksmithing. Now, is this Mao or Mick Wallace? <laughs> this this was Mao. Because Mao, Mao did that. I don't know Mao, if Mick Wallace has done Mao's that. I think Mao's plan was he wanted to do it, and then they would redistribute industrial work to all of these small farmers instead of these large collectives. And it was some bizarre experiment in communal uh, on the communal stage of Marxism. And it just did not go well. Then again, I mean, you've got to admire the um, I've got an idea nature of it. <laughs> Beware of a man with an idea. Anyway, millions of people were killed in the end by the war on pests. So it's, it's probably slightly less funny with that in mind. But Oh, yeah. I mean, and it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't just the war on pests, but I mean, the famine. I mean, there was that. There were... Uh, I think there were two famines, at least one, I think, was maybe deliberate generation. We were talking about millions of people died, and tens of millions of people died of the famine. It was it was absolutely horrendous. It was well up there. Although, you know, people always compare, it's not really fair with uh, Stalin and the Holodomor in Ukraine, but the thing about that is, okay, you're so much smaller population, and it was six million in a very short space of time. Also, when you're talking about the Holodomor, it's incredibly depressing, and you don't get to say... First they killed the sparrows, but then the locusts came, which is, as a sentence taken in isolation, just amazing. Does sound like the start of a Dostoevsky novel. <laughs> First the sparrows disappeared, then the locusts came. I don't know, I think more maybe like a Turgenev short story, but anyway, or, or even a Chekhov play. Anyway, we will be back on Sunday. We will actually be back on Sunday this time. Uh, all the best. Bye bye.